Thank you for tuning into this webinar, 1099 Compliance in 2022, prepared by year in 2021. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH Employer Solutions. AGH Employer Solutions is a team of professionals that helps employers, business owners, and human resource professionals hire, compensate, manage, engage, train, and retain one of their most critical resources, their talent. Today's speaker is Cindy McSwain. Cindy leads AGH's Outsourcing Services Group. Her team provides payroll, accounting, funds disbursement, controller, and other financial outsourcing services to numerous clients throughout the central U.S. Prior to directing the outsourcing group, Cindy served AGH's assurance clients for 10 years, working with a wide range of middle market, closely held, and family-owned clients. Cindy's a certified public accountant, a member of both the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Kansas Society of Certified Public Accountants, and she's active at the board and officer level of numerous civic and professional organizations. Although they can seem complicated and tedious, 1099 forms are an essential part of tax reporting compliance. This webinar provides updates on common questions about 1099, such as deadlines, who must receive a 1099, exceptions to the rules, and penalties for noncompliance. Join Cindy McSwain for a review of the rules and tips to stay on track. I appreciate everybody being here. So welcome to today's webinar. Uh, this one is actually the first in a series of four webinars where we're going to look at preparing for year end. So today's webinar, we're going to cover 1099s. And then um, on December 2nd, we have a, an annual webinar that covers fringe benefits. And the webinar then on year end payroll reporting is scheduled for December 16th. And in between the two payroll webinars, on December 8th is going to be our webinar on preparing for 2021 uh, from an income tax standpoint. And that's going to be presented by Emily Lawrence and Leanne Stever, who are two of uh, AGH's tax managers. Now you can go out and register for all of these um, on our AGH University website. Now today I want to cover the various information reporting forms, the reporting requirements, filing deadlines, and penalties. And then lastly, some best practices for preparing for uh, the upcoming filing season. So let's start with uh, what's new for the upcoming filing season. And there's not a lot, thank goodness. Um, they're not nearly as significant uh, changes as what they were last year. You're going to recall that uh, the 1099 non-employee compensation form uh, was brought back to life last year for the 2020 filing season. And then that 1099 miscellaneous form was redesigned. Um, and really, we don't have anything quite that significant. Now, unless you file electronically, this isn't going to be a big deal. But for those of us who do file electronically, we were ecstatic to learn that the form NEC is now going to be included in the combined federal state filing program this year. So last filing season, that non-employee comp form was too new and it wasn't included in the file share program like the miscellaneous form was. And this resulted in electronic filers having to file separately with every state that had filing requirements. And so it was a pretty big headache. Uh, there, another change, there's a new address for the Austin Submission Processing Center. For uh, those of us whose principal business is located in Kansas, which is where I'm at, we use the Kansas City, Missouri Processing Center, so this change may not affect many of you. Um, if your principal place of business is not in Kansas, I suggest that you take a look at the general information um, instruction booklet to make sure that you're using the correct address to, to send those in. Uh, the Taxpayer First Act of 2019 was enacted in July of 2019. It authorized 
the Department of Treasury and the IRS to issue regs that reduce the, the current 250 return requirement for electronically filing 2021 tax returns. Um, at this time, there haven't been any regulations issued, so that threshold is, still remains at 250, which we'll talk about later in, in the webinar. But that's out there, so it's, it's potential that sometime in the future that that threshold is going to get lowered. Uh, let's see, an extension of time to furnish statements to the recipients is now, it's always been around, but um, used to be able to mail it in. It's now a fax-only submission, and detailed information on this is also included in the general uh, information returns instruction booklet. Uh, the filing of Form 1098-F, which is for fines, penalties, and other amounts, uh, is still not required at this time. So it's a form that's out there but it's not required uh, to be filed. Uh, it was newly released in 2019. Uh, it's primarily for governments and non-governmental entities that exercise self-regulatory powers. Uh, there's a form 1099-H. It's used to report advanced payments of qualified health insurance payments and its instructions. Those have been converted from annual updates to a continuous use program. So if you happen to file that form, you might want to look at the instructions uh, to see what that means for you. Um, and here's the biggie of the year. The title of the uh, form 1099 miscellaneous has actually changed from miscellaneous income to miscellaneous information. So I wanted to make sure everybody was aware of that one. Um, I'm not sure. I couldn't find anything that said why they would do that, but that's okay. Um, next, let's go through the various information reporting forms that are out there, and, and I cover this every year just to give you a general sense of, um, you know, there, there's a ton of different forms. Now, the bulk of what we're going to talk about today is going to be focused on uh, the 1099 for non-employee compensation or the NEC form and the miscellaneous, um, as these are two of the most commonly filed forms out there, however, you know, again, I want to give you a glimpse into, you know, what else is out there. If any any of these words that are on the screen that you see might trigger a thought that, oh, gosh, we might have something like that, then I'm going to suggest that you go out and, and look at the instructions for that form. Um, I always like to refer to this slide as alphabet soup, since there's really kind of a form for almost uh, every letter of the alphabet that's out there. So this first page here are the ones that uh, we run into most frequently. Uh, and you can download the slide. Um, I think, it, I think there, it's out there for you to be able to download everything. And then you can go back and revisit the presentation itself um, in our archives later if you want to look at this list again. Uh, also, this is listed in the general instructions for information returns as well. So if you make payments in any of these categories, again, I advise you just to go out and do a little more research and look at the instructions. Here's some additional forms in the 1099 series of returns. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I'm not going to go into each of these, but again, just to kind of let you see what all is out there. And, um, you know, now we get out of the 1099 series. Uh, that typically represents amounts that are potentially or typically picked up as taxable income by the recipient. Then we move into the 1098 family reports. Um, these are for reporting payments that are made by the recipient instead of to the recipient, as well as some um, other additional forms that are in there. And then even more, uh, retirement plans, various saving plan contributions also require 
um, information returns as well. And last but not least, uh, we're re required to report uh, gambling winnings and wages and related taxes. We're not going to touch on any of the payroll related things because that's a, covered in a totally separate webinar coming up. And, you know, this list doesn't even include the forms that are required under the Affordable Care Act. So you can see there's just a lot of forms out there. So I always like to just, you know, throw up a picture of what the current forms look like, at least for the um, miscellaneous and the non-employee comp. This is this year's NEC form. It's really pretty straightforward. It only contains boxes for non-employee compensation and, and any taxes withheld. It's due to both the recipient and the IRS by the end of January. It doesn't matter if you file on paper or electronically. This is why they brought this form back last year, was to speed up the filing of um, this type of contract labor. Uh, the one change, it's actually, you'll notice that it's been resized, and that's it, so it's longer and shorter. Um, that's only so that it can accommodate three forms on one page of uh, one, three forms on a page. Um, additionally, box two is no longer blank like it was last year. Uh, payers may either use box two on this form or box seven on the miscellaneous form to report any sales uh, totaling $5,000 or more of consumer products for resale, on buy, sell, deposit commission, or any other basis. Again, I don't think that's a very commonly used thing that's out there, but um, if you happen to have that item, it's important to note that. Um, then this is the 1099 miscellaneous form uh, for this year. Again, it's called miscellaneous information up there in the right-hand corner. Um, just gives me a chuckle, sorry. Uh, this form is due to the recipient by the end of January, but it's not due to the IRS until the end of February or March, depending if you're filing on paper or electronically. So one question that I've gotten uh, quite pretty frequently over the last year since they introduced, reintroduced the, the non-employee comp form is which form that you know we should be using for corrections. And, and the answer to that's really pretty simple and straightforward. Use the same form that you originally used. Um, in other words, you know, for those years prior to 2020 when the NEC form wasn't even out there, you still use the miscellaneous form even if it was for non, what would today is non-employee compensation. For anything after 2020, for 2020 and after, sorry, it includes that year as well, then again, use the form that you originally used. I always like to share um, resources that I use and the best overall resource that I've found for um, the year-end information reporting returns is really on the IRS website and it's the instruction guides that are out there. So there's a general, this, the top one that's listed there, there's a general instruction form for, or instruction guide for certain information returns. And, and this is really kind of an overall look. Um, so that one's always, um, I always down that, download that one, put in my little three ring binder and highlight the heck out of it. Um, I've also um, listed instruction guides here for the miscellaneous non-employee comp interest. And then there's one for dividends as well. Um, another good one to use uh, that's not actually listed here, but um, IRS Publication 1220 is a good resource relating to electronic filing requirements for these returns. 
um, you know, again, when after this webinar is over, I always get a slew of questions. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, I really go find those answers in these instruction guides. Um, there's there's regs and, um, you know, information in the IRS code that's out there. Uh, but really, if you get down into the nitty gritty and the, the Q&As and detail examples, it's going to be in these instruction guides. Um, I'm also going to talk, I've, I've got these listed again at the end, just because I, I want to make sure that you have them in your uh in your uh, resource area. Um, and then I'm going to talk about a little more, uh, a couple more publications from the IRS that are related to penalties a little later on. Um, this is a snippet that I always like to include too. Um, you can tell I kind of cut and paste this together a little bit, but this is a chart that's included in the back of the general instruction book. Uh, it's three pages long it, and all these pages look this have the same columns in there and it lists every single type of form um, including what the reporting requirements are what the thresholds are and the due dates whether it's the due date to the recipient or to the IRS um, and I always think this is a great place to start if you're trying to get a feel for you know what some of the different requirements might be or what's included if you know if something triggered you on that very front alphabet soup chart this is a great place to go do a little more look so we're going to roll into um, our first polling question of, of the day. And like Mike said in the intro, uh, we need to answer three of the four if you're looking for to be getting credit today. Um, so I'm just trying to get a feel from, you know, the people in attendance as to how many 1099s you normally prepare each year. And you can see the answers there. So if you can kind of just click through that, um, we'll leave that open for a little bit. Cindy, while those, answer, or yeah. while those responses are coming in, we did have one question. Um, can you confirm sure. if a taxpayer electronically filing federal NECs does not need to file anything with the state of Kansas? You know, interesting question. Um, the state of Kansas does participate in the combined uh, federal state filing program. Um, so you should be covered there and shouldn't have to. However, when I've actually had conversations with somebody at the state of Kansas, they said they still like um, for that to be electronically filed with, with Kansas as well, just because it goes faster. They get it quicker than what they would through the um, federal state filing program. Um, so I know that's probably not exactly the answer anybody wanted, but you should be okay um, just using the 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 combined federal state filing program. I just know when I've talked to them, they've said yes, they would, they'd still appreciate getting, getting it directly. Okay, so I think, Mike, if we want to close that poll out, it looks like most everybody has, <coughs> excuse me, We're good. We're oh, okay. Um, looks like the majority of you are somewhere in the 10 to 250 range. Uh, you know, we here at AGH process and file for a, a number of our clients and we're probably right in that in that same um, range for average I think I looked at that not too long ago and I think our average is probably like 15 per entity or something like that um, we go ahead and file everything electronically just because we bulk file but that's that's very common all right so let's move on thank you for answering that question so next, I kind of I want to move into what types of payments are required to be reported, and how we go through that process. So you know where do we start? 
we're really going to begin by looking at absolutely all payments that are made in the course of your trade or business. And you're considered to be uh, engaged in a trade or business if you operate for a gain or profit. Therefore, personal payments aren't reportable, so individuals don't need to worry about this. And then for this purpose, nonprofit organizations, um, you are considered to be engaged in a trade or business, and you are subject to the reporting requirements um, and payments by federal, state, and local government agencies. Those are also reportable. So even though you're not really in business for profit, nonprofits and governments um, are included in the, the entities that are required to make these reports. So where do we, again, you know, we're going to start with all the payments, but where do we find them? You know, they're going to live inside your accounts payable system, including manual checks. They're going to live inside your payroll system, potentially. Um, I, I know a number of organizations who pay contract labor through their payroll systems or even if they're outsourcing them. So it might be there. You're going to find them, you know, through your bank accounts and credit cards if you're making electronic payments. So we really want to, and, and I know we don't have to report on credit card payments. We're going to talk about that. But we really want to start with that entire population of payments that are going out. You know, next, we're going to start peeling off exceptions. And everything else after we peel off those exceptions um, is going to be reportable as long as they meet the dollar thresholds. So we're going to um, go through the many exceptions next and the thresholds after that. But we really want to, you know, figure out where do all of our payments live and in what system so that we can, you know, start with that whole population. So let's start talking about some of the exceptions that we peel off of there. So generally, payments that are made to a corporation uh, do not have to be reported on a 1099 miscellaneous, even though they may be taxable to the recipient. Now, when I say corporation, that's going to mean uh, a limited liability company, an LLC, that's treated as a C or an S corporation. It's going to mean a C corporation. It's going to mean an S corporation. But even you know, with that exception, we have an exception to that. Payments that are listed here in the box on the right, they do have to be reported even if they were paid to a corporation. And we're going to discuss some of these payments later as well. Um, the, you know, the ones I commonly see are the attorneys and maybe some medical and health care payments. Um, but there, I've listed all the ones that are um, exceptions to that. So additionally, we have exceptions, which means payments that are not required to be reported. Um, they include things uh, for payments for merchandise, telegrams, telephone, freight, storage, uh, similar items to that. Rent that is paid over to a real estate agent, that's also not reportable. However, that real estate agent must then use a 1099 miscellaneous to report any rent that's paid over to the ultimate or end property owner. You can also pull out in any employee wage payments because we all know those are reportable on a Form W-2, not on 1099. Employee expense reimbursements, those are also excluded from 1099 reporting. Um, however, they may be reportable as compensation on Form W-2, especially if they're not underneath a, uh, an accountable plan or you don't have the substantiation. So you'll learn a lot more about that in the, in, um, the upcoming uh, webinars on payroll. 
So here's some more exceptions. Uh, in other words, those that are not reportable. Uh, those are any payments that are made to tax-exempt organizations. That includes tax-exempt trusts. Those would be your um, IRAs, HSA, Archer, medical savings accounts, Coverdell, educational savings accounts, uh, any payments that are made to the United States, a state, the District of Columbia, U.S. possession, or a foreign government are excluded as well. Um, credit card merchant processors and third-party network transaction processors, they are responsible for reporting um, payments that are made on a, on a credit card or a payment card. Uh, they report these on a bulk basis using a Form 1099-K, so we can peel those off of our payments as well. Um, canceled debt transactions, those are reportable on a Form 1099-C for organizations in the trade or business of lending money. Now, if you have a, a loan out there that was forgiven or you know canceled, but you're not in the business of making loans, then you're not required to report that. However, again, I would suggest that you go and look at the instructions for that form to make sure um, that your your particular situation fits. Um, but on the other hand, you know, if if you forgive an employee loan or something like that, then it could be considered compensation and reportable on a different form like W two. So um, that was a lot of exceptions and, you know, a little overwhelming and, and confusing, but I, I'm going to recap. So we're going to start with a listing of all payments. We're going to start filtering out any exceptions, um, you know, the big one being payments made to a corporation, payments for merchandise, utilities, employee wages, but also, you know, payments for expense reimbursements, credit card um, expenditures, and various other payments. But don't forget, again, that there are some exceptions to those exceptions, uh, especially those for attorney fees and medical payments, even if they're paid to a corporation. So now we've kind of gone through and said, you know, what's our population of payments? What is um, What are all the exceptions that we can peel off and filter off? Um, so now what do we do with, with the bucket of stuff that we have left? So... Um, we want to look at uh, the various reporting thresholds because, again, not all of the remaining items need to be reported. Some of the thresholds can be as, as low as $10, while others are $600 before reporting is required. Um, a couple of the co less commonly used types that actually have no threshold and everything is reported, um, not, the, not the more common ones that we're talking about today. So again, make sure you know the thresholds for the types of payments. And again, that um, that chart that I was showing you from the back of the general instruction guide um, has all those thresholds in there. So it's a great place to go. Uh, the, the the general threshold for reporting interest, dividends, retirement plans, uh, distributions, that's $10, although there's a few exceptions to that. Um, on the miscellaneous form, there's a $10 threshold for reporting gross royalties and broker payments in lieu of dividends or tax-exempt interest. For most everything else that uh, we're talking about today, uh, the threshold is usually $600. Uh, that's used for mortgage interest, cancellation uh, of debt, as well as many payments that are reported on the non-employee comp and miscellaneous. Um, there is specific guidance out there that the cancellation of debt uh, does not have to be used for the PPP loan forgiveness. That's good because um, banks would be having to do a lot more. 
Um, Non-employee comp includes payments for services performed for a trade or business by people that are not treated as uh, employees. Examples um, would include fees for professional services such as uh, attorneys, including those that are in a corporation, um, accountants, architects, contractors, engineers, uh, etc. Uh, also, there's going to be payments for other services, including parts and materials to perform the services if supplying the parts and materials was incidental um, or not material to providing the service. Commissions that are paid to independent contractors, uh, gross oil and gas payments for working interest and director's fees, those are also going to be reported as non-employee compensation on the NEC form. Um, generally, amounts that are reportable as non-employee compensation to an individual, those are usually subject to self-employment tax by the recipient. And so if the payments to those individuals are not subject to self-employment tax and are not reportable anywhere else on the Form 1099 miscellaneous, then they go in box three of the miscellaneous, um, re miscellaneous return, uh, which is for other income. A lot of times I see... Uh, the recipients kick something back saying, no, this shouldn't be on a non-employee compensation because I'm, I shouldn't be paying self-employment tax on it. Um, so we want to be very careful because it does have ramifications for the recipient. Uh, anything else that's reportable on the miscellaneous form also has a $600 threshold, including rents, prizes, awards, and other income payments. Um, Medical and healthcare payments, uh, that includes payments to a physician, a physician's corporation, or other supplier of health and medical services. The, these would be issued mainly by medical assistance programs or health and accident insurance plans, but I, I've actually dealt with clients who have paid for visits uh, related to what otherwise would be a workers' comp claim. Uh, they send the employee directly to the doctor, they pay the bill on his behalf, instead of you know turning them over and having work comp take care of it. Those kind of payments are reportable as long as they meet all the other uh, qualifications and thresholds. There's no dollar threshold for payments to crew members by owners or operators of fishing boats, um, including payments of proceeds from the sale of catch and income from non-qualified deferred comp plans. Um, again, not something that, that we're always, you know, using often, but I um, want to throw that in there in case you are. Uh, reporting is always required for anyone with any backup withholding, regardless of the amount of the payment. So if there's, um, you know, $2 worth of tax withholding that came out of a payment and it doesn't meet the $600 threshold, it's still reportable. This is going to be true for both the miscellaneous and the non-employee comp. Uh, forms. So I want to take a little bit of break, break here and address another uh, frequently asked question about where to report payments to attorneys and when to report it as non-employee compensation versus when is it gross proceeds paid to an attorney. I get this question every single year after I do this uh, webinar. The term attorney includes a law firm or other provider of legal services. Attorney fees of $600 or more that are paid in the course of your trade or business, those are reportable in box one of the NEC form. Box 10 of the miscellaneous form, which is called gross proceeds paid to an attorney, should be used for payments of $600 or more made to an attorney in the course of your trade or business, but in connection with legal services, but not for the attorney services 
And as an example, a settlement agreement. Um, there are some examples that are included in the instructions to the miscellaneous form uh, for further clarification. So again, that's where I really point you to to look. Um, just <coughs> excuse me. Just as a reminder, the exemption from reporting payments made to corporations does not apply to these payments that are made for legal services. It's a popular question. Um, let's go on to some other considerations. Um, sometimes get questions about deceased employees. So if an employee dies during the year, uh, you must report the accrued wages, vacation pay, and other comp paid after the date of death. If you make the payment in the same year that that employee died, you must withhold Social Security and Medicare taxes and then report, report them as, <coughs> excuse me, only as Social Security and Medicare wages on the employee's W-2. So this is gonna make sure that the proper Social Security and Medicare credit is received. Don't show any payment after the date of death in box one, which is gross wages on the W-2. You're gonna report the payment to the estate or beneficiary in box three, which is other income on the 1099 miscellaneous. If you make that payment after the year of death, don't report it anywhere on a W-2 and don't withhold any Social Security or Medicare taxes. And again, once you make the payment, you're gonna report that to the estate or beneficiary in box three, other income of the miscellaneous form. And what about death benefits? Uh, death benefits from non-qualified deferred comp plans, those are reportable on the miscellaneous form. And benefits from qualified plans are gonna be reported on the 1099-R or retirement distribution form. Another consideration to always keep in mind is backup withholding. Um, I'm going to discuss that again when I cover penalties and IRS notices. Uh, interest dividends, rents, royalties, commissions, non-employee comp, and certain other payments, uh, those might be subject to backup withholding at a rate of 24%. Um, that backup withholding might apply if, if the payee fails to furnish his or her taxpayer identification number if the payee fails to certify that that TIN is correct, um, or if the IRS sends you a letter and notifies you to that you should be imposing backup withholding um, because of something that the, the payee did. Um, if you're required to apply backup withholding, you're required to report that withholding on both the 1099 miscellaneous, um, the NEC, and not Form 945, that's the annual tax deposit uh, form, which is, um, that all has to go in together. And again, there's not a threshold on that, so all of it has to be reported. You know, another thing that we need to think about and consider is the impact of working globally. Um, we're all doing more and more work globally, so we need to consider foreign contractors. I'm just going to touch briefly on this uh, topic, primarily just to make you aware of it and I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail. As long as the foreign contractor is not a U.S. person and the services are wholly performed outside of the U.S., then no 1099 form is required and no withholding is required. You need to ask that, contra that, for that contractor uh, to uh, complete a form W-8, and that's really just comparable to a W-9 for domestic contractors. Uh, by signing that Form W-8, that foreign contractor certifying that he or she is not a U.S. person, 
Um, similar to the W-9, don't need to file that with the IRS. You just kind of keep it on hand in case, you know, that taxpayer is ever audited and, and you need to, you know, be able to provide proof of why you didn't send a 1099. Now, what you do have to worry about is this. Um, you need to be aware of any payments that are to a foreign company for services that are provided inside the U.S. In other words, U.S. source income that's going to a foreign-based company. Again, the Form W-8 is going to help you uh, specify you know, if anything needs to be withheld, uh, how much needs to be withheld. And without this, the minimum required withholding is 30%. And additionally, you might have to issue a Form 1042 for information reporting purposes. And that 1042 is kind of the foreign contractor equivalent of the 1099. Not exactly, but similar. Um, so if you have transactions with foreign customers or vendors, I always recommend that you seek advice from, um, from your tax advisor to make sure that you're doing things how you should be. Okay, so let's look at what those reporting deadlines are. So again, I don't have all the forms up here, but these are the most commonly used ones. So that you can see um, in that third column, uh, for the most part, the NECs, the miscellaneous, the interest, dividends, and uh, the retirement plan distributions, those forms are pretty much always due to the recipient by January 31st. There's a couple exceptions in there, um, gross proceeds paid to an attorney, and some, <clears throat> some dividends, the tax-exempt interest type stuff. Um, is to the 15th, but for the most part, it's January 31st. Um, for the most part, um, it's due to the IRS by either the February 28th or the end of March, depending if you're filing in paper or electronic form. The big, big exception to that is the non-employee comp forms. The non-employee comp forms are due to the recipient and to the IRS on the exact same day, um, which is the end of January doesn't matter how you file them. Um, they either need to be postmarked or electronically filed by the end of January. So that's, that's probably the biggest thing we need to talk about there. Now, there are extensions available for both providing the statements to the recipients as well as filing with the IRS. Um, remember that there's a letter to the IRS for furnishing statements to recipients. It's not automatic, and this year it's fax only. If that is uh, granted, it's generally a maximum of 30 extra days. Um, if we want to do an extension for filing with the IRS, uh, that's an automatic 30-day extension after you complete the Form 8809, and you can file that electronically or paper. Really no signature, no explanations required because it's automatic. Um, and then an additional 30-day extension can be applied for under certain, certain conditions but that doesn't take away the requirement to get those in the hands of the recipients. So there's two ways we can file with the IRS. One is electronically or paper. Uh, businesses must file their, um, their returns with the IRS in electronic format if you're required to file 250 or more information returns, and that's on a per type. So, you know, if you have 249 non-employee comps and 10 miscellaneous and maybe a dividend and maybe an interest, you're not required to file any of those um, electronically. It's on a per type. So if, once you hit 250, then you're required. 
to make that an electronic filing. You can request a hardship waiver if you're unable to file electronically. Um, there's a form out there, it's a 8508, and that has to be filed at least 45 days before the due date of the returns. Um, so hopefully your hardship doesn't happen within that 45-day window. Um, and it's not an automatic, um, it's not an automatically granted waiver. Uh, that filing threshold for electronic filing, that applies separately to original returns and corrected forms. Um, if you're filing in paper, do not forget to include a transmittal form, the 1096, and that is on a per type as well. So if you're filing multiple types of forms, you have to have a transmittal form for a 1096 transmittal for each type that you're filing. So let's look at some things that might get you in trouble or penalties. Um, there's actually three different types of penalties. The first one is for failure to file, failure to correct information, failure to provide correct information returns by the due date, failure to furnish a correct payee statement or to the recipient, and then a failure to file electronically. So um, the first one, is failing to file a correct information returns by the due date. This is filing it with the IRS. So if you correct it, so correct it or first file it within the um, 30 days, you could be subject to um, a per return penalty of $50. There's some maximums and the maximums are lower for small businesses, which is defined at the bottom of this slide. The penalty goes up if you don't have them filed or corrected by August 1st, and then um, after August 1st, or if not filed at all. You know, the one we really want to avoid is that intentional disregard at the bottom. That's up to $570 per return, and there's no penalty, no maximum um, for either regular businesses or small businesses. So every fall, I get multiple phone calls and emails regarding um, organizations that have received correspondence from the IRS with proposed penalties or missing or um, it's penalties for missing or incorrect taxpayer ID numbers. And, you know, it doesn't say we're going to assess this. It says, here's what came in uh, that doesn't have good ID numbers. We need you to look at it and, and take care of them. And it could, it's a proposed penalty. It, it, it's a could be penalty. But the, those penalties, how they're calculated is based off of this chart right here. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about those notices and what to do with them. The second penalty that's out there is for failing to furnish a correct statement to the payee. It's a separate and additional penalty. However, it's applied in the exact same manner as the first one we just talked about. So if you don't do uh, your 1099s at all, the penalty is double what we just talked about. Um, you know, in most cases, if you file with the IRS, you've likely provided that recipient with a copy or vice versa. Um, and again, if you haven't done either, they basically double. And now you're looking at, you know, minimum of $100 per form. Or if we, you know, get to that intentional disregard and we double that, that's, um, you know, over, over $1,000 per form that uh, didn't get filed. Now we're talking about some pretty steep penalties. So an average fairly small business might have around 10 forms to file. We saw that in our poll. So if they completely disregard the requirements and they get caught and audited, 
they could be facing a, a penalty of over ten thousand dollars, and you know that's that's a big amount and could be devastating to that fairly small business. So we want to make sure that we comply. The third penalty is uh, a failure to file electronically if you're required to do so, and this penalty is up to two hundred eighty dollars per form for each one that's over two hundred and forty nine. So they're not going to, you know, if you have 251 returns and you should have filed electronically, they're only going to charge the penalty on two returns. They give you, they give you a grace period or grace for the for anything that's under 250. There are some exceptions to the penalties. Uh, first one's reasonable cause. You can show reasonable cause and not willful neglect if you can show that your failure was due to an event that was beyond your control or due to uh, significant mitigating factors. You also have to show that you um, acted in a responsible manner. Uh, the second one, an, an inconsequential error or omission, that's uh, not considered a failure to include correct information. Uh, this would be an error that doesn't prevent or hinder the IRS from processing the return or from correlating the information with the payee's tax return. Things that are never considered um, inconsequential are those related to a taxpayer ID number, payee surname, or any monetary amount. There's also a de minimis rule out there for corrections. Uh, this is avail available for filers who have filed information returns timely, uh, but either failed to include all the information required or included incorrect information and filed corrections by August 1. Um, if all three of those conditions are met, the penalty um, is not going to apply to the greater of 10 returns or a half of 1% of the total number of returns uh, that are required to file. So it doesn't make it go away, but it does reduce it. Um, also, there's some safe harbor rules out there uh, for dollar differences. The difference between the dollar amount reported and the correct amount is no more than $100. And uh, the difference between the dollar amount reported for tax withheld and the correct amounts no more than twenty-five dollars. It's not a big. It's not a big amount, so um, you know they need to be pretty, um, pretty accurate to avoid that. So I mentioned this a little earlier. Every year, the IRS sends out these uh, CP twenty-one hundred notices twice a year. They send it out in October and the following April regarding missing or incorrect uh, taxpayer ID numbers. Uh, really, these let payers know that they might be responsible for backup holding. Um, it's accompanied by a listing of uh, what, what the IRS saw as missing, incorrect, or not currently issued uh, TINs. Um, you know, what do you, what do you do when you receive these notices? Um, you know, first you need to pull out what, what backup that you have uh, compare that to your internal to your internal records, and uh, you know if it's a missing or obviously incorrect ten, um, you know you should begin backup withholding immediately. If it's an incorrect name and TIN combination, but it's a clerical error, you don't need to do anything uh, but use the correct information in future 1099 filings. Um, if it's an incorrect name and TIN combination, but there's not a clerical error. Um, then you have to start sending out some notices and begin collecting things. And that's when, um, you know, you need to start getting, there's some very specific ways to do that, uh, that, that you need to make sure that the, the wording in your uh, wording in your letters are correct because you need to go out to that individual or to, 
whoever you're sending that uh, 1099 to and make sure that you have the correct information. So these two publications here are extremely helpful. They can be um, found on the IRS website. This first one, 1281, it's for backup withholding, missing incorrect name and TINs. And it basically walks through what those notices are on the slide before and how to correct and how to look. So um, that's the first place I would go. Uh, IRS publication 1586 talks about the reasonable cause, willful neglect, some of those things that, um, you know, how we can avoid and maybe get out of some of the penalties. So this was one of the questions that came up earlier. Um, you know, it's, it's important to understand the filing requirements of each state that's out there. Uh, the combined federal state filing program, it was established to simplify information returns filings for those, for the payers. Through this program, the IRS electronically forwards certain information returns to participating states, not all, but certain ones, and the NECs and the miscellaneous are included in that. Um, however, um, you know, not all states participate in that, so you have to make sure you know, and it's, it's the state where you're reporting it, not necessarily the state where you are in business. So you have to be looking at, um, you know, what's their state going to require. You know, additionally, each state may have different filing thresholds. Um, so it's, it's important to kind of understand what's going on in those other states. And as I mentioned, again, uh, the NEC is going to be included in that file share program this year. So let's talk about, um, now that we know everything that's out there in the requirements, let's talk about how we're going to get ready for um, the task of January that's going to be upon us. So these are some tasks that can be handled at most any time during the year, but definitely should be on your radar right now uh, if you haven't already um, done them. Uh, my outsourcing group is currently in the middle of these right now, um, and they're listening, so if they're not, they need to be. Uh, the first step is to review processes and policies that are already in place, start revisiting what was done in the prior year, uh, those processes should be, you know, at least somewhat in writing um, because we only do this once a year, so it's really hard to remember back. And then anybody could pick it up in the in the event of turnover. Secondly, we want to do a review of any and all of the accounting softwares or systems that are utilized. This is going to include both AP and payroll systems, uh, you know, get an understanding of what information is available and how reports need to run. In order, excuse me, in order to capture the the information that's necessary. Thirdly, you know, make sure you check the the review of setup of vendors and other potential recipients. Make sure you have all the information required, including names, addresses, the taxpayer ID numbers, and the entity type. And the best way to get that information is by utilizing um, this form right here, the W9, uh, because this is going to give you everything that you need. It's going to tell you, um, you know, there in box three, it tells you what kind of entity they are. So that's going to tell you if you even need to report to them or not. Um, that, that's probably the biggest thing that I get is people aren't sure, you know, what kind of entity they're dealing with. Um, you know, do you have to get a new W-9 every year? No, but it is upon, uh, the, the responsibility is upon you as the payor. Um, to make sure that you have up-to-date information. So a lot of companies will have a process for, you know, sending that, sending that out. 
Um, there's potential penalties for receiving a W-9 request uh, and not properly completing and returning it to the requester. Uh, those are listed here. So if you get those requests, you want to make sure that you return them. And hopefully that you know incentivizes the, the recipient to return it to you as well. If the recipient does not provide a TIN, um, then you can leave the box blank on the form for um, the TIN. It might end up resulting in um, backup withholding at some point, but you know you can only do what you can do. Here's some additional tasks that you can complete between now and the end of year. Um, you know, kudos to each of you that are attending today's webinar for tackling the first item on this page. You know, getting some additional training. Um, you know, I preach on this, but additionally, the IRS instructions, uh, those, those are already out there on the irs.gov website. Uh, and again, there's really no significant changes for this year's reporting. So, you know, a good basic refresher is, is all you really need, you know, if you've done this before. Um, another thing that I ask all of my accounting staff to do here at AGH is to take a preliminary run through the, their clients' vendors and payments to determine if there's any actions that we, you know, can take now rather than waiting uh, for January. Um, you know, I don't make that the solid list because, you know, you might not be over the threshold, you know, for anything at this point, but you could be by the end of December, but it's, it's good to take a preliminary shot at it. Just as a reminder, um, you know, we, we want to start with all payments, so we want to run a list of all payments for the year by vendor. Uh, then we want to, you know, just kind of mark off and filter out any of those that aren't required for information returns reporting. And if you're doing this before year end, again, uh, don't look at the threshold piece of it because that may change before the end of the year. This final task list is usually done uh, fairly shortly after the end of the year. If you're filing electronically, you want to do a test filing to make sure that everything is good there. Um, you know, you want to make sure that once you do fi file your final uh, things electronically that you have confirmations back and that it was a good filing. Uh, you know, if you're making corrections, you want to make sure that um, you're getting those corrections not only to the recipients but to the regulatory agencies as well. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in there, and, you know, and after all that, if the actual filing process seems too overwhelming for you, you can always call me and, and my staff, and we can do the form preparation and electronic filings for you, but shameless plug. So the last area that I want to cover uh, includes common errors and best practices. So this list of common errors comes straight um, from the IRS, again, out of the general instructions. Um, we want to be careful that if we're filing electronically and you need to make a correction or make an additional filing, if you send the entire file again, it's going to show up as a duplicate filing. Um, you know, another common one is not matching the filer, the filer's name on the transmittal. So this is if we're filing in paper, that it doesn't match the name that's on the actual underlying returns that are accompanying that uh, transmittal. Um, they still continue to say that, you know, decimal point needs to show dollars um, and cents. One of the common errors is that those cents are admitted. Um, it doesn't have to be to the penny, but at least needs to have something on the right side of the decimal point, so zero, zero. Um, you know, another common error is that um, there's not a separate 1096 transmittal form for each different type of uh, return that's out there. 
Um, and this is the one I see the most. The last one here is, you know, incorrectly or misinterpreted uh, reading or completion of the Form W-9. If you're filling that out and you're a disregarded entity, you need to look at the instructions because there's a certain way that you need to be filling that out. So some best practices. Um, solicit information using the appropriate forms, follow the IRS solicitation requirements, um, utilize the IRS TIN matching program, gain an understanding of the 1099 related features of your software systems and use them to their full capacity. It's going to make your life a lot easier. Uh, review both the payroll and accounts payable systems so that you can look for duplicate or additional payees that might be out there. Um, you know, train your AP personnel on an annual basis or at least review the processes. And then um, here's another one. Review, if, if you're filing electronically, review that electronic data file for reasonableness. Some of the notices that I've seen or been forwarded um, really could have been avoided if someone would have reviewed it <clears throat> just to notice that an incorrect field was picked up or that there was garbage uh, in a in a specific field. Um, so some of that, if we just do a little bit of self-review, can be taken care of. So I'm not going to spend time on these slides, but I just want you to see that I have given you some, you know, this is that, that resource list again, um, a couple slides here that has that on there, just so if you need a place to go back and look, you know, where did Cindy say to go um, ask my questions? There's three slides there that, uh, those, those are kind of the, the guidelines I use all the time. So Cindy, um, I'm just going to kind of run through the questions. If there's something that's too specific or you need to kind of go offline and answer it, feel free to say so, but we'll try to get through as many of these as we can. Um, the first one that came in was, if you are a nursing home and forgive debt to a resident family, should they then receive a 1099-C? So, and I'm, I'm trying to look at these at the same time you are, Mike. Um, probably a little too specific. I'll, I'll try to answer that one offline. Okay. Um, and I thought I saw another one that said, will 1099-C be discussed? So there's there's a couple people that have situations like that. Um, in the specific question, I'll, I'll look at offline, but again, I'm going to recommend that there's specific instruction booklet for the 1099-C that gives a lot of good examples and, and has a lot, of, um, a lot of help in there. So I, I'm not going to take that one at this time because I'd, I'd have to look it up a little bit first. Yeah, sure. Uh, next one was, can you talk some more about payments to corporations and when we have to report them? Um, really, uh, the, the two main pieces there are if it's to an attorney or a medical services provider. Um, doesn't matter if they're a corporation or not a corporation. There's a, there's a few other um, small incidentals there, but those are the most two common ones that I see. Gotcha. We've had a couple questions come in on this one. I assume grants are reportable on the 1099-C, and then the related question, should grant writers receive a 1099-NEC or 1099-MISC? Um, if your grant writer, if you've hired them as, I would typically think that that's contract labor that for a grant writer. I would think that that's contract labor that you're going to report on an NEC. Um, because they're doing that as a trader business, so that would be reportable on their their tax return as self-employment income. Um, I don't know. There's a question out there. I assume grants are reportable on the 1099-C, uh, 1099-NEC. Um, Christy, not sure. 
sure if you could maybe send me an email with a little more detail on what that question is for. Um, deadline to file the 1099-C, I don't have that in front of me, but I can answer that offline as well. What else do you've got that I'm not seeing? Uh, payments made to an attorney for employee garnishments on a 1099. Should we record those payments? <laughs> oh, I'm going to answer that one offline as well. There is absolutely no good guidance for that question, and I get that question every year as well. Um, I'm going to tell you that, you know, us here at AGH, we've made our own internal decision not to report those as payments made to an attorney. Um, but there's not any good guidance out there one way or the other. Um, so, Mike, I'm going to get these questions, right? So I, I'll know who to respond to individually. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And I'll, I'll um, on that question, I'll give you the information that I have. Um, and again, I think it's an internal uh, risk decision that you have to make because there's really not. Some people do it. Some people, most people do not. Okay. Last question for you. How often should a W-9 be updated for a vendor? Again, there's not really any good guidance on that. Um, I have, I know there's some companies out there that do it every year. Um, some do it every two or three years. Some do it every five years. If you know that something has changed, an address or company's been acquired, um, any if your AP area gets correspondence from one of your one of your vendors that something like that has changed, I would immediately send it out. Otherwise, I think you're fine to do it every you know, two to five years. 